0: RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co-hosts on this podcast and will be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA-regulated entities, such as IFAs, Asset Managers, SIPs and Brokers, TPR-regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover... I welcome our guests to the podcast today. Welcome to our two returning guests, Anthony Cutler and James Parsons, on the podcast today, the 26th of July 2022, as Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust compete to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and with that Prime Minister, and following the announcement that the UK will host the Eurovision Song Contest in 2023. We have two topics today for our podcast. First of all, the Public Accounts Committee's report on British Steel pension scheme and the wider Final Salary or DB defined benefit pension transfer market. The report makes quite grim reading for the FCA, and Anthony will bring listeners up to date with that. We then turn to a High Court decision in Fitzroy and others v. Manning and Smith, which provides a useful reminder. The principles when it comes to whether administrators have dis- discharged their duty of care when it comes to a sale of an asset. But before turning to all of that, it's worth going through some notable developments during July 2022 and since our last podcast. First of all, the FCA published its annual report and accounts for 2021 2022. This provided that the FCA had used its powers under Section 166 of the Financial Services and Markets Act, the skilled person's power, 38 times. Section 166 gives the FCA the power to get an independent view of aspects of a firm's activities that cause concern from a skilled person. The FCA also reported that it was considering a six month extension to the rules to implement the new consumer duty, which is going to add a further principle to the FCA Hamburg, extending the time for compliance from April 2023 to October 2023. On the 27th of June 2022, the FCA issued a DSCEO letter to debt advice firms, setting out key risks and expectations for those firms offering advice in that area. And the FCA also sent a DSCEO letter to lifetime mortgage providers or equity release providers, setting out their expectations given the rising cost of living. So still quite a lot going on in the financial services market, but turning to our guests, and first of all, Anthony. So Anthony, you're going to pick up where David left off last month when it came to BSPS and DB or defined benefit final salary transfers and cover the Public Accounts Committee's recent report on the British Steel Pension Scheme, or BSPS for short. So before we look at that, can you provide listeners with a bit of a plotted history of what happened with BSPS?
1: Thanks, Rachel. In essence, the BSPS was a large defined benefit or final salary pension scheme sponsored by Tata Steel UK. A DB scheme provides guaranteed income to its members at retirement, based on the years they've been an active member of the scheme and their salary. Tata experienced financial difficulty in 2017, at which point the BSPS was restructured, including a decoupling of the DB scheme from the company. At that point, Tata Steel applied for a Regulated Apportionment Agreement, or RAA, following which a scheme would normally enter the Pension Protection Fund, or PPF, which is a pensions lifeboat, where the employer enters insolvency. However, the government was keen to explore other ideas for restructuring of the BSPS, To provide members with an improved option compared with the benefits they would have received from the PPF. The new plans would see Tata set up a new pension scheme called BSPS2, which offered reduced benefits to BSPS1 and with less generous inflationary increases. However, it was generally thought that BSPS2 offered members better benefits than they would receive from the PPF. What this meant was that members essentially had three options. One, they could do nothing and see their pension moved automatically to the PPF. Two, they could agree a pension transfer into BSPS2. Or three, they could request a cash equivalent transfer value of their pension and transfer it into a personal pension. The members had to make their choice in a relatively short period of time. What happened was that 7,834 members went with option three, i.e. they chose a cash equivalent transfer value and to transfer their benefits out of the scheme and into a personal scheme. 95% of those transfers involved advice provided to members by IFAs. Following those pension transfers, there were concerns that members had received unsuitable advice and may have made poor financial choices and lost money as a result, which of course, as as we're aware, has yielded a lot of press and government attention. The FCI has criticised advisors and recommended that those members complain to the FOS, The FCA has asked 45 firms so far to conduct a past business review and 17 of those firms have gone insolvent, having been unable to bear the costs of that review. So far, the regulator estimates that £12 million has been paid to members by way of compensation. Essentially, the FCA considers that the main reasons for unsuitable advice, specifically on BSPS transfers, were firstly that the advice market wasn't prepared for the impact of BSPS. That's to say there was limited time To understand the situation and advisors had a financial incentive to recommend a transfer secondly advisors responded poorly to increased demand for services and lacked resources to scale up using standardized advice rather than catering to client specific needs and thirdly advice firms had implemented bad practices including a failure to request sufficient information with advice failing to provide sufficient detail to be suitable and too much weight given to the members desire to transfer rather than thinking about their wider retirement income needs.
0: So against that background, Anthony, and the press attention and the government attention that you commented on, what has the Public Accounts Committee been looking at?
1: Well, um, the Public Accounts Committee has certainly not pulled any punches in its criticism of the FCA in the wake of BSPS. The committee has remarked that the FCA has been, as it says, consistently behind the curve in responding to unsuitable pension transfer advice, and that it has failed to take preventative action to protect consumers, despite being aware of the potential risks caused by new legislation in 2015, That's, which is, of course, the pension freedoms. With specific reference to BSPS, the committee adds that the FCA did not know what was happening in the DB pension transfer market and failed to identify the scale of the BSPS issue. The regulator is also said to have had inadequate oversight of the advice firms involved, and that its response was a light touch, failing to take swift action and adequately protect consumers. And the committee has even been critical of the FCA's attempts to resolve the problem, remarking that the regulator adopted a standard complaints-based redress process that was ineffective for uh, British Steel members, since only 25% of members in fact raised complaints. It added that many members had not been compensated fully, with £21 being lost in compensation due to financial limits on firms entering insolvency, that's to say, by the FSCS cap. The committee also says that the BSPS case points to wider issues within the regulation of financial advice, such as the FCA's authorisation and oversight of small firms, its access to data and intelligence to identify problems, and its use of enforcement powers to respond to them quickly. It also highlights significant risks, including the overall function of the pension advice market, and the capacity of redress organisations to manage large-scale consumer detriment.
0: So the report from the committee makes six recommendations, reaches six conclusions. Can you briefly summarise
1: those? Yes, so the first conclusion or recommendation is that the regulatory system left British Steel members open to being manipulated and taken advantage of by unscrupulous financial advisors who personally benefited from giving bad advice. As a result of that, the recommendation in the report is that the FCA should provide the committee with an update on the extent and impact of unsuitable advice on BSPS members and what it has done to prevent a similar case from happening again. Secondly, the FCA has consistently been behind the curve in responding to the catastrophic impact on BSPS members. And in response to that issue, the report says the FCA should examine what can be done to improve the data and insight it needs to inform a more proactive approach to regulation. And what lessons can be learned from its response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Three, the FCA has not been sufficiently proactive or timely in using its enforcement powers. The report says that the FCA should report to the committee on the progress made in its 30 active enforcement cases, how it is updating its approach to make a clearer distinction about how it enforces against poor conduct and rogue advisors, and how it signals the outcome of its actions in the wider market. The FCA He's also encouraged to review whether it has sufficient powers to deal with bad actors in the financial sector. The fourth point is the way that compensation has been provided in the BSPS case has been slow and unfair. The report says that when considering the implementation of a consumer address scheme for BSPS members, the FCA should consider how further address mechanisms can be implemented more quickly and provide fair compensation. It should also consider how to resolve differences In the levels of compensation received by BSPS members to date, and how this compares to the the amount that other members will receive from the proposed Redress Scheme. Five, seven years after the Pension Schemes Act, regulated bodies are still not clear on the FCA's expectations for consumer protection. The report says that the FCA should be more proactive and consumer-focused in its engagement with stakeholders and have a better mechanism for responding to consumer harms. It should collect more evidence on a regular basis to identify issues raised, especially from emerging risks in financial markets. The FCA should also review how effective the FS consumer panel is at consumer protection and how it influences policy debates within the FCA from a consumer angle. And finally, the sixth point is that the current compensation arrangements do not always protect consumers, can create wider costs to firms and may not have the capacity to cope. Future risks in the advice market. And on, on that final point, the report says that the FSA, Financial Ombudsman Service, and the FSCS should write to the committee in six months to explain what they are doing to manage risks in the redress system for financial service. The FCA's handling of the wider DB pension market should also be reviewed, since there could be thousands more cases of mis selling which may be eligible for financial redress, given the significant amount of unsuitable advice seen across the sector. Review should include considerations of solutions and circumstances in which an industry wide levy is insufficient to pay out compensation.
0: So, six quite long and detailed recommendations and conclusions that the the report reaches, Anthony. But perhaps the key ones are, first of all, the comments around redress, given that we've got the ongoing Section 404 or Consumer Redress Scheme consultation at the moment, and the FCA is currently looking to respond on that later this year. And then the second, perhaps key, remark in the report is about the wider db transfer market so picking these up in detail and first of all what the report says on redress how do you think that's going to impact everybody and can you just give us a bit more detail on what the report says on, on that
1: particular point uh, well with regard to redress the fca is still considering responses to the proposed section 404 redress scheme for bsps and that process as we know is still ongoing under Section 404 of the Financial Services and Markets Act, the FCA has the power to require firms to establish an operator redress scheme where it has seen evidence of a widespread or regular failure by firms to comply with requirements resulting in consumer losses. On the issue of redress, the committee report says that BSPS members face significant delays in receiving compensation. It notes that complaints made to the FOS take an average of eight months to be completed and that many members have not received the full amount of compensation owed to them. Many members who have sought redress through the FSCS have lost 21 million pounds in compensation due to FCA imposed financial limits. The report is also critical of the varying levels in compensation awarded based on when redress is calculated. But really the crucial point of the report is that due to the way in which redress is calculated, members who sought compensation early have received significantly less than those who claimed compensation after 2021. And the implication from the report is that those members should receive a top-up in the amount of their compensation, and the FCA should be considering that point as part of the Section 404 redress process, which at present does not require firms to top up the compensation awarded to those early members. In terms of how to calculate redress, there are two further problems with the Section 404 redress scheme. Firstly, the comparator scheme members had options either to go into the PPF, i.e. the do-nothing option, which we touched upon earlier, or transfer to BSPS2. However, the section 404 gives no real guidance on how a firm assesses or a member explains what option they would have taken. And the second issue is that for the PPF option, the scheme looks like it will re-emerge out of the the PPF. So comparing to PPF benefits might itself represent the right comparative for calculating compensation. Although there will be arguments around remoteness and foreseeability when it comes to whether redress should be calculated for those that would have entered the ppf if the new scheme is adopted and with that a top-up added to any ppf-based redress
0: so some quite complicated points around redress to, to sort out and perhaps as you say anthony the key point being is that those who complained early perhaps have received less than those who complained a bit later and the, the committee seemed to be, be a bit critical about that The second point is around the committee's criticisms of the FCA more generally about the wider defined benefit uh, transfer market. So what do you read as being the key driver for those comments from the report? And and what does the committee suggest the FCA should be doing
1: about it? Uh, Well, the report states that there is a fundamental misalignment between legislation and regulation of the DB pensions advice market, and that's caused confusion over suitability of transfer advice. The report says that the 2015 Pension Schemes Act, which was intended to provide greater freedom and flexibility for consumers to manage their pensions, allowing DB pension scheme members the opportunity to transfer out to a defined contribution scheme in order to access their savings. We understand that 17% of DB transfer advice is considered to have been unsuitable when compared to the 4% unsuitability rate for other advice sectors which means there are thousands more consumers that are likely to have been missold DB pension transfer advice and a due compensation. In terms of the impact that that will have on the wider DB market, if the FCA is going to be digging further into this issue, then we may well see many more firms being subjected to regulatory scrutiny, which could result in an increase in firms entering insolvency. So we'll have to watch this space over the coming months.
0: So a topic there that we've covered a few times in the podcast, which is the contradiction arguably between the government wanting everyone to go out and buy a Lamborghini versus the FCA's slight mistrust of DB transfers and the DB transfer market more generally. So what's going to happen next with BSPS? We've mentioned the consumer redress scheme. So where are we and what's going to happen?
1: Well, the responses on redress had to be provided by the 12th of May, 2022, and the consultation itself ended by the 30th of June, 2022. The FCA is this month, i.e. July 2022, is set to review its existing guidance for firms on how to calculate redress for unsuitable DB transfers that will impact BSPS and any unsuitable other DB transfers. And the whole process of the redress scheme is set to come into play at the start of 2023.
0: Thank you, Anthony. No doubt BSPS and DB transfers will be a topic again on the podcast as it's a recurring theme throughout this year. We now turn to James, welcome back to the podcast, who's going to be taking us through the High Court decision in Fitzroy and others v. Manning and Smith. In very broad terms, it's a claim against administrators for the alleged undervalue sale of two properties, some rather odd properties in central London. The case arguably does not break new ground, but it's an interesting set of facts and a good reminder of the key principles for claims against administrators for sale at an undervalue. So as I said, the facts are quite interesting. So James, can you just outline those to start with, please?
2: Thank you for having me back, Rachel. This is an interesting case which administrators and their insurers will take comfort from. As it shows, the court will recognise the challenges administrators typically face on appointment. It confirms the court will not likely interfere with the exercise of commercial judgment involved in selling assets at the best available price, unless it's clear that the administrator has made a serious error, and that can be said to have caused the alleged loss. The companies that entered administration had purchased two neighboring properties in St. John's Wood in London, which were to be developed and sold. The properties were referred to as iceberg houses during the trial because of the unique character of the properties, which had a significant underground space with around 60% of the properties being below the ground. During the construction, the properties were valued by Montague Evans at a combined total of 100 million in 2008, which jumped up to 109 million in 2011. The redevelopment was initially funded by Barclays in 2008, who had advanced $51.5 The junior creditors that go on to claim against the administrators entered the fold when further funding was required to develop the properties once built. The redevelopment was completed by September 2011, and the properties were marketed by estate agents Knight, Frank and Savills, with an aggressive guide price set at £75 million each. The agent struggled to sell the properties initially, and received negative feedback from buyers who basically said the properties were strange and overpriced. Repayment was then demanded by Barclays in September 2013, and the companies were put into administration in October with administrators at Deloitte appointed. What followed was a great deal of disagreement between the administrator, Mr. Manning of Deloitte's, and the sales agent around the guide price, how the property should be marketed, and whether other agents could also be involved in marketing the properties. Mr. Manning took account of the input from the sales agent and also consulted a property specialist within Deloitte. Prices were then set at £35 million for one of the properties and £30 million for the other because it required further work. Knight, Frank and Savills were then given a window of 28 days to contact the parties that had previously been interested in the property. However, the agents were generally critical of the administrator's approach and suggested their marketing strategy had been undermined by the involvement of another agent at Aston Chase and they called the process a free-for-all as a result. In November 2013, the junior creditors raised a concern about the prices on the basis of alternative valuations of $52.5 million and $42.5 million put forward by another Savills agent. The administrators put the alternative valuation to the sales agents, who disagreed with them on the basis that they were desktop valuations made for the purpose of refinancing prior to the administration. They also stressed that they themselves had valued the properties between 30 and $40 million And had shown the properties to 160 potential purchasers over two years, with 40 of them being amongst the most wealthy in the world, without there being a sale or a serious offer. Mr. Manning therefore maintained his position and received offers between 45 million and 71 million. They would eventually go on to accept an offer of around 62 million. Before acceptance, Mr. Manning asked the agents whether they were satisfied that they had done all they could the offers received reflected market value and that the offers should be accepted accordingly. The agents recommended acceptance, noting that the properties had been marketed for over two years with over 200 viewings and said that waiting for further offers would be risky. They also suggested there was a serious lack of bidders because of the St. John's Wood location, which hadn't drawn the same interest as other iceberg houses in places such as Kensington. The sale eventually completed in April 2015 and Barclays recovered around 61 million. So, they recovered their loan and fees, whilst the junior creditors received nothing.
0: So, Barclays was the lead charge holder, and the claimants, the applicants in the case making the allegations of, of sale at an undervalue, sat behind Barclays and were set to receive nothing as a result of the sale value achieved for the two properties. So, what were the allegations being made against the administrators?
2: The broad allegation by the claimants was that the administrators had acted in breach of duty for selling the properties at an undervalue. Primary allegation was that the administrator had acted unlawfully and in breach of their custodial duty by disposing of the properties which were subject to fixed charge securities in favour of the junior creditors, as if they were not subject to those securities and without obtaining permission from the court as required under the Insolvency Act. This was based on Mr. Manning entering into certain contractual arrangements with the buyer prior to the completion of the sale. The judge rejected the allegation on the basis that the arrangements did not involve the disposal of the property as if it was not subject to the claimant's security. The claimant's alternative claim involved allegations of breach of duty by the administrators, and this is the focus of the judgment. The junior creditors alleged that the administrators paid insufficient regard to their interest and said that Barclays' interests were prioritised unreasonably. They relied on evidence that suggested that the lead administrator was only focused on making a full recovery for Barclays as quickly as possible. The claimants broadly alleged that Mr. Manning did not understand the market value of the properties, that the efforts undertaken to market the properties were inadequate, and this caused the properties to be sold below market value as a result. They alleged that the marketing strategy was rushed and flawed, that the higher valuations were unreasonably ignored, and that the disparity in valuations warranted a formal red book valuation, which they said would reveal the higher market value.
0: The judgment at paragraphs 169 to 174 in particular sets out the key principles for consideration when it comes to a claim against administrators for the sale of any asset, and in particular in relation to properties, when it, and it comments on the management market and sale of properties. So can you, James, just take us briefly through those key principles when it comes to assessing breach?
2: The judge confirmed that the basic legal standard to apply was that set out by the High Court in Reed Charley davies The judge in Charlie Davies confirmed that a complaint against an administrator that has failed to take reasonable care in the sale of a company's assets is a claim involving allegations of professional negligence and that the administrator is to be judged by the standards of an ordinary skilled practitioner, not by the standards of the most meticulous and conscientious member of their profession. So in order for the claimant to succeed, they must establish that the administrator has made an error which a reasonably skilled and careful insolvency practitioner would not have made. This is nothing new as these are established principles that would apply to any professional negligence claim. The judge and Charlie Davis did, however, expand on this to confirm how this should apply to claims against administrators related to the sale of an asset at an undervalue. in particular. Millet J confirmed it is not an absolute duty to obtain the best price that circumstances permit, but only to take reasonable care to do so, which should be assessed by reference to the best price that the administrator reasonably perceives to be the best available in the circumstances. So this is a subjective test and the administrator would not be held liable simply because their perception is wrong unless it's plainly unreasonable. The judge in this case, Fitzroy Manning, made two key points in relation to the duty on the administrator. The first is that a decision to sell an asset involves an exercise of commercial judgment. And the authorities collectively demonstrate that the court will not likely interfere with that. In other words, the court will give an administrator leeway and will generally not question their judgment unless it is based on a wrong application of the law, or it is obviously unfair to a particular creditor. The court will generally take into account the nature of the administrator's role and the challenges they face on appointment, with the pressure brought about by the need to act quickly and commercially with less than perfect information. This approach makes sense, as otherwise it would pave the way for claims where an asset is sold towards the lower end of a reasonable price range. To set a duty to obtain the best possible price without that being assessed by reference to the administrator's reasonable view and the exercise of their commercial judgment would make the professional's role incredibly difficult. The second point made by the judge is that the administrator is entitled to rely on appropriate professional advice in carrying out his duties and will not be liable on negligence if the advice relied upon appears to be competent. The administrator must establish, however, that their reliance was reasonable in the circumstances. This largely ties in with the first point in that it requires consideration of the pressures of the administrator's role and generally taking into account of what is reasonable in circumstances. It would be unfair to hold the administrator responsible if they had taken reasonable care and demonstrated that by getting input from other professionals.
0: So what did the judgment then find on the specific facts applying those principles?
2: The key issue in this case was whether the junior creditors had any real economic interest in the administration which required a consideration of whether they were set to recover anything upon the sale of the properties. This, in turn, gave rise to the central issue of the case as to whether the properties were sold for their proper value. This required consideration of the administration process as a whole to determine whether the administrator breached their duty to the creditors and, if so, whether that caused the property to be sold for less to the detriment of the junior creditors. The judge assessed this by reference to what happened and did so by considering the written correspondence relating to the sale of the property, rather than relying on the witness's recollection of the events. In doing so, he was applying the approach to evidence advocated by Leggett Jain, Gessmin and Credit Suisse, which is an interesting judgment that's worth a read in itself because of the illogical approach taken to weighing up evidence. The approach here places a premium on documentary evidence over witness recollection that should be regarded as fallible and subject to change over time. In this case, the documents from the time were critical to determining whether a better price ought to have been achieved by Mr. Manning, and the judge focused on the correspondence that passed between Mr. Manning and the agents to determine whether he had acted reasonably. The judge did, however, find that there were errors by Mr. Manning consistent with a lack of due care and attention. However, the judge ultimately found that the deficiencies were inconsequential as he formed the view that the properties were sold for their market value or the best price reasonably achievable in the circumstances. And so Mr. Manning had met the standard expected of him as set out in Charlie Davies. The judge was unpersuaded by the claimant's suggestion that a different outcome would have been achieved if they had become more involved in the administration. The judge found that it was reasonable for Mr. Manning to conclude that there would be insufficient funds from the sale. For the other creditors and also found that the level of engagement with the junior creditors was sufficient. In reaching this conclusion the judge was recognizing the complexities of the administrator's instruction requiring the sale of a substantial and particularly unusual property as part of an insolvency process and concluded that the issues did not arise because of the unreasonable conduct on the part of the administrator Mr Manning. In doing so, he was applying the authorities that broadly encouraged the court to take into account the bigger picture for administrators that have to apply their commercial judgment under pressure. The case is a useful reminder of the basic need for the claimant to establish that the alleged breach of duty has caused the relevant loss, something that applies to all claims. There is also a case-specific point relating to the need for an administrator to obtain a Red Book valuation. One of the key allegations made by the claimants was that Mr. Manning should have taken account of the higher valuations or commissioned a formal red book valuation of the properties given a disparity across these valuations and the guide prices set by the estate agents. The judge was generally unconvinced by the claimant's argument that there was a real uncertainty on the valuations and that a red book valuation should have been obtained as a result. He disagreed that this would have revealed a valuation similar to that identified by their expert. This was because of what actually happened, as the Montague Evans calculations have been provided on a red book basis and had proven to be completely unrealistic when the properties were put on the market, as proven by the fact that they were not sold prior to the administration. The judge agreed with the defendant that the unique design of the properties made them difficult to value, and there was little point in commissioning another report especially where the red book valuation itself is designed to identify an estimated market value. And the same can sometimes be achieved by simply putting the properties on the market. So applying this, it seems that administrators tasked with selling properties can sometimes take the pragmatic approach of proceeding to market the properties in reasonable expectation that there will be a market of bidders competing against each other that will ultimately determine the price. What matters is that reasonable care is taken in fixing the guide prices and the administrator does not necessarily need to obtain a formal red book valuation. In this case, the properties have been valued in such a way early on and has already been exposed to the market for a considerable period of time. The decision in relation to the red book valuation may be somewhat fact-specific in this respect, given the nature of the properties and the failed attempts to sell the properties before the administration, which made the formal valuation unnecessary. On the whole... The case does demonstrate the latitude the court will give to administrators acting reasonably. The case should give comfort to administrators tasked with selling properties where the value of an asset is a contentious issue and there are several creditors involved. Administrators can satisfy their duty of care by taking reasonable care to obtain the best price they consider to be reasonably achievable, which can be demonstrated as well by seeking professional advice where necessary. It's clear that they do not need to hold up for a better price perceived to be obtainable simply because of the pressure from junior creditors.
0: Thank you, James. And thank you to Anthony for your time today on the podcast. Um, and thank you all for listening. RPC Radio. Radio. We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.